Hello, and welcome to Lens, the podcast brought to you by British Screen Forum. My name is John Gisby, and I'm delighted that you're listening. Welcome to this episode of Lens, brought to you by the British Screen Forum. In this first series, we're focused on public service broadcasting, the UK's long-held policy framework that aims to ensure that everyone in the UK can access TV and radio programmes that inform and educate, as well as entertain. So far, we've heard the perspectives from inside two of our broadcasters via conversations with Mark Thompson, who was Director General at the BBC, and David Abraham, who was CEO at Channel 4. We've also heard from Inside Government, from John Whittingdale and James Purnell, two recent Secretaries of State. In today's conversation, we combine both of those perspectives and add a third through a conversation with Ed Richards, who held senior roles at the BBC and in Number 10, and then at Ofcom, the converged regulator that he helped to create. So, delighted today to be joined in conversation by Ed Richards, uh, managing partner and co-founder of uh, Flint Global. Uh, Welcome, Ed. Thank you, John. (laughs) Um, uh, In current life, uh, Flint Global advises clients who face regulatory challenges um, and assists in navigating them. So uh, a number of these conversations, I mean, these conversations typically start with um, you have a particularly unique vantage point. Um, across all of the things, having having been at the heart of the BBC, uh, been one of the instrumental um, creators of Ofcom and then led Ofcom, really kind of uh, setting up and 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 managing the framework within PSBs operate. Um, the other is amongst uh, amongst several other things. Um, uh, you were once described by Lord Grade as brilliantly intelligent, scrupulously fair, very open and challenging. Uh, so on on every level, uh, really looking forward to the conversation. Um, we'll start with the easy one. What is public service broadcasting and why does it matter? Well, uh, I would I, the, the way I would answer that is by avoiding what I think has often happened in the past in these conversations, which is the, uh, the, the which is the the easy route to take and answer that question, which is to reel off a series of uh, uh, adjectives, superlatives, and other types of words, which you know are uh, designed to make people feel very, very excited. In other words, you know, you talk about diversity, creativity, innovation, uh, originality, storytelling, and all of this sort of thing. And I will come back to those, but I don't think it's the right place to start. Uh, and the reason I don't think it's the right place to start is because I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that uh, purely commercial private provision, market, market-based market uh, content creation provides an awful lot of that. And it would be it's absurd to argue that it doesn't. So the real question about uh, public service broadcasting, PSB, is not uh, you know, can you reel off all those words? It's you know why are you doing something in addition to that which would happen anyway? And what is it? And I think the answer to that is to say, well, you know, there's a range of things that we want for the wider good of society, for citizenship, there to be a very good supply of and a bigger supply of than we might suppose that the market would otherwise provide. And those things are, of course, concerned with content that uh, supports our democratic process, that provides information to the citizenship of the country, that is in a an entertaining way, educational, uh, which is referenced in the uh, culture and history and context of our country rather than being uh, some global product or service which could be made anywhere. Uh, And those are the sort of key features of it. And the key defining purpose for me is that this is an area because of the wider benefits they have uh, in those areas that you want to make sure that there is a, uh, a bigger supply of uh, content of that kind than, than the market alone would provide, and you know that that for me is the test. That is the heart of what it's what it's about, and you know those are both the sort of characteristics of public service broadcasting and and the reason that you're trying trying to invest in it. 
From a from a policy point of view, it might go back to your days in, in number 10, and you're sitting in the, the signal box with all the poli- public policy levers in front of you. What is the from a, from a kind of government and, and, and policy intervention point of view? What's it? What's it for? What is what is it aiming to deliver? It's aiming to deliver, you know, a a very healthy supply, uh, a, a widespread availability of and and sufficiently high, ideally very high take up and use of the kind of content which you know has those wider benefits so you know making for making sure your 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 the population and your citizenry is as informed about what matters in society in relation to the democratic process as possible making sure that there are uh, th- there is content cultural work output that is uh, about the country in which we live and how it's changing. So that is actually the, I said I'd get back to these words, that is uh, about telling stories and uh, uh, and thinking about and responding to the uh, our current society and indeed our history. Um, and it's about uh, the uh, creative uh, response to the kinds of challenges that we that we face, um, but you know, you could simplify that in and around, uh, ed- you know, educate, inform, and entertain if you want to as well. You can come back to that. I mean, I don't want to try and overcomplicate it. I should add one thing at this point, though. So for, for me, though, that's the heart of the argument. It's about making sure the system overall, with its private provision, its commercial, purely commercial provision, and its mix of public service provision, you know, provides a really healthy. Uh, and diverse range of output of that kind, which is you know very very widely available to people, uh, and more so than would be the case if you if you didn't have the public service intervention. Now you're you're going to say, or somebody could say, yeah, but how can you measure that and so on and so forth? And you can't measure it absolutely precisely and scientifically. You're looking for an estimation, which means which is contrasting two states of the world. One state of the world is where you would have some of that provision provided through pure market forces, and you want to achieve a state of world where there is plenty more of it, which increases the diversity of it, the range of it, the impact of it, the reach of it, and so on. And those are the two two states of the world you're trying to contrast in my mind. I would add one other factor, which, which I will no doubt come on to, but which to me has always been a secondary objective, but it is an objective, which is that I think if you achieve a positive outcome in relation to that set of objectives, you should get quite a significant set of spillover benefits in, in relation to what you'd call the creative economy. So you are likely to get, um, I mean, I hesitate to use the phrase industrial strategy, so let's not use it. But um, uh, <laughs> I think you, it's clear that you, sh- you should get some very positive economic spillovers that are, that are of, of, of wider benefit as well. And they're, they're significant and I think valuable to the UK. And I suspect that um, many competitors have said that, that the kind of thoughtful interventions along the way around um, the degree to which the broadcasters are making their own content versus the Channel 4 publisher model and all the rest of it, and the way that that has all been calibrated over time has, has been one of the things that has catalyzed the creative economy um, that we now have. And, and again, one of the reasons that we're getting so much inward investment. Um, how, universality, you've talked a lot about um, uh, availability. Um, and supply and having content available, to what extent, in order to get the public policy benefits, to what extent do you also need to try and find a way that it is actually consumed? Yeah, I, well, I think I think two things are important on that, and I think they go in lockstep with with my at least my view of what what the reason you have a public service broadcasting system or set of interventions. And what one is universe is definitely universality because I I struggle, you know, if, if your aim is to increase the supply of and the impact of and the take up of and the reach of uh, a, that type of service in our cultural and content context, then, you know, I think for it, not to be universal would seem slightly perverse. So I think universality is is very much consistent 
with uh, with what I see as the as the primary set, set of goals, um, and by extension, in uh, ease of access and availability is important as well, because you know re- reach and impact of these of the these interventions is obviously important. I mean, if you let me let me put it in the negative, you know, if if you've got a series of interventions which either have direct or indirect costs for the taxpayer or through you know through foregone uh, um, auction revenues for example however you want to think about it if it has direct or indirect costs of some kind then if it turns out that those interventions are having zero have got zero reach and zero impact then I don't see how you can possibly justify them so they've got to have some they've got to have reach and impact and therefore it seems to me to to, to follow that you need to think also about not only universality as a starting point, but also about availability and access. And that's about, you know, that is about responding to the distribution challenges of the, of the age. In the conversations we've had so far, there, there's sort of two sort of underlying models, or sort of intellectual models, if you like, that, that come up. Uh, to, to paraphrase a conversation we had with, with Lord Putnam, um, you can, th- if we can make a case for the National Health Service being about physical health, then essentially this is about cultural and, and intellectual and mental health, and uh, and therefore the range of content um, and the and the scale of the intervention should be quite significant. Um, conversation with John Whittingdale, much more a, a kind of classic market failure argument, which is that as the market continues to provide and as actually consumers have a wealth of choice to stuff, does it still need to be funded through public service intervention in some way? Um, uh, and 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 genres drop out of that news, current affairs, kids, uh, maybe one or two others. But actually, entertainment and drama look as though they're being provided pretty well by the market, and people can buy them if they want them. So why do they need to be universally available for free at taxpayer expense? Are those two models? I mean, given the the span that that, that you have over the debate as it's unfolded, are those two models the right ones? And how have they shifted over time? And do they do they shift along with with the sort of political zeitgeist of the day, or is there other things going on? Well, they definitely do shift along with the political zeitgeist of the day, but I would encourage people to try and avoid letting them be shifted along with the zeitgeist of the of the day. Uh, I, I mean, they are absolutely two poles of the debate. Um, but again, I, I would try and take it a level below or above beyond that however you want to think about it i just add i'd add a set of thoughts to it uh, and they they would be roughly as follows um i mean f- firstly there is always the problem of you know what what is a market failure and what is not a market failure and it, you you can take a very narrow or, or quite a broad view on that uh, i mean if you, if you take a narrow view you could, for example, easily say, well, you know, I, I was watching the new, news uh, channels last night and, you know, it was, it was very clear there, there are plenty of 24-hour news channels. There's, there's no shortage of news provision. You can, you, you know, there's quite a lot. Um, but the question is whether that is gives you the mix that is optimizing, you know, the best for the UK with its needs and you know how we think about that and the answer is that we think actually we should have public service intervention there to increase the supply of and the diversity of the range of news provision and that i think would be widely regarded as sensible um there's other genres where you could say let us low you know and you mentioned entertainment you mentioned drama you know there's other you can always ask the question um to my to my mind I've always felt that there's there's a there's a very narrow market failure approach you can take, and you could take that. But I've always preferred a slightly more accommodating one, um, which recognises the sort of positive externalities argument. So the, the 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 spillover benefits, rather than just the does the market provide it or not, and if it does, then that you just stop there. I, I think it's this is why I ref, I refer to the the sort of quantity of supply. I think some of the in some of these areas, you just want to make sure there's health, there's very good diverse supply, uh, because that's probably where the best outcome lies. So the fact that the market is providing some of it isn't doesn't necessarily lead me to conclude that therefore you don't need a public service broadcasting 
addition or intervention. So that that's one issue. I think the second issue that you have to think about is the relationship between the economic uh, perspective that, in a sense, those two poles uh, provide. It is a kind of market failure outlook, but you need to connect that to your to your understanding of institutions and how institutions function in these sorts of markets. And in that space, in that area, that to me really is a very important dimension to this. And one of the reasons I think by and large, you can say we've we've had a very good system is because we've had a diversity of institutions. And on the one hand, you've got purely commercial companies, totally, you know, I mean, regulated at a very general level, but no more. No, certainly no content obligations. Um, And they have sometimes produced some outstanding content, which you'd look at and say, crikey, that's got fantastic public service dimensions. Uh, And you can think of things like, you know, Sky Arts or, you know, drama of various different kinds, you know, all sorts of things. Um, But you'd also look across and, and you'd say, well, in the end, those providers are actually just profit maximizing. And that's fine. That's what they're supposed to do um, in a regulated context. But then but then you look across and you go, you know, you go through the, the public service broadcasters that are purely privately held. You go through Channel 4, which is currently publicly owned, uh, right across to the BBC. And I think one of the strengths has been that diversity because you've got a range of institutions thinking about how they produce content in different contexts. And... I, you know, again, difficult to be scientific about it, but I think that's had, I think that's had very positive. That that mix has had a very, very overall positive, positive benefits, um, largely because it gives you this diversity of supply. And I see a lot of markets where diversity of supply is a very attractive feature. So I would also say you've just got to connect that, um, that those two alternatives that you described back into not just your view of uh, the the nature of public service broadcasting and, you know, for want of a better phrase, you know, your view of market failures and the market contribution and how you think about that either narrowly or broadly. And I err towards thinking about it broadly. Uh, and then you've also got to think about it in the context of how uh, institutions uh, function in in markets, and by institutions, I mean you know everything ranging from companies to public corporations through to something like the BBC. <clears throat> um, one of the things that characterised uh, your tenure at Ofcom was particularly reviewing the the kind of scale and scope of the public service remits, particularly by TV, um, and really trying to trying to square the circle of the economic conditions they were in, which were partly transitory in the in the, the particular economic crisis at the time. But also recognizing the shift away from linear and and, uh, and ad funded content, and how that still fits with a um, with a PSB remit, um, you, you stated very clearly at the time that uh, the ownership matters, um, and the degree to which something is in the organisation's public uh, core purpose around PSB provision, uh, those organisations are going to function differently than somebody who, than an organisation that is that is commercially functioning with a shareholder remit. Um, can you say a little more about that, and and particularly as we head into a world in which potentially Channel Four um, goes into privatisation, the the kind of pros and cons of doing things via uh, via a regulated remit with when with commercial incentives? Yeah, I I, I, it, 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 it's, um, I think it's an uncontroversial view, really. I, I think if you, I think all I'm saying there, and all I've ever said on it, is it you know that the purposes of an organization um, are likely to affect you know matter in relation to the decisions it takes and you know if you just think about the range of different ways that organizations are set up uh, ranging from you know charities through to social enterprises social impact companies through to you know the more uh, pure Milton Friedman-esque model of uh, of, of companies and uh, you know at the other end, I think it is sort of self-evidently true, and anybody on a board of one of those entities, you know, asks themselves, 
you know, what are we, what are we here to do? What's our purpose? And as soon as you ask that question, then it's going to affect your judgment about, you know, how you prioritize resource, what kinds of decisions you make in particular situations and so on. So I think it's an incredibly uncontroversial thing to say in, in most respects. Um, I guess the you know the rubber hits the road when you ask yourself, well, in a particular case, does it make any difference? And you then got to think about it specifically. And and it, it, it it's I, I don't I don't think the answer is it it doesn't make any difference because I don't think that really can hold. I mean, if you change the primary function or or ownership or purpose of something, I think it's, it's obviously likely to change it. I think that is rarely going to be the main issue. The main issue is, are you, is it a trade-off between that and something else? I mean, are you, you know, the argument being made on Channel 4 is that it will be able, it will be better able to do other, certain other things if it was privately held. Um, so it's not about, it's not about does it or, you know, it's more about what are the range of choices of, in which ownership is a, is a factor and maybe a benefit in certain regards, but some people may regard it as a, as a problem in other regards. So, uh, so in some ways I think my, my view that um, institutional or organizational purpose and motive matters is, you know, is in, I do think that's pretty uncontroversial because I think it, it obviously is, it obviously is going to have an effect. Uh, you know, if you flipped a company, if you flipped, uh, um, Tesla tomorrow and made it a charity, then it would have an effect, right? So I don't, I don't think that's controversial. I think, I think it becomes more difficult when people say, "Well, what, what, what matters for the for the pros- for the effectiveness of this organisation in the long run, and uh, does you know what role does the particular ownership status play in that?" As the regulator in the middle of that, you're clearly then trying to calibrate. The remit that is uh, that, that, that the individual company is expected to deliver, based on the economics that the, the underlying economics of its business model and what the prospects of that are, and the degree to which it, that you then hold them to account to c- continue to do stuff that they wouldn't necessarily do if they were purely driven by market forces. When you look, when you look back, that is probably a rhetorical question, but do you think you got the balance right? Uh, I uh, well, just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you invited me to say yes i got that right <laughs> no respect. i think that's i'm not going to do that I, well let me let's just give you a couple of examples i think the i mean the, the, let's the, take, let's the, take well, itv let me let, take, let me give you a, 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 a specific um a specific piece of piece of kind of analysis yeah, in a way sure some people have looked back at the at the change in the itv remit and said um has the dividend that has been delivered to shareholders since then actually been a greater and should some of that still have been kept within the remit i guess that's the core of the question well that is a, so that is a difficult i mean that is a almost an empirical question that i don't know the answer to uh, and i doubt anybody i mean it's quite a complicated piece of empirical work but but let me let me try and answer it directly in a different way um i think if i look back on the itv question uh you know, there is a there is a careful judgment to be made here in relation to uh, the you know you, you you want to I've we we felt it was very important to keep ITV as a healthy uh, vibrant part of the PSB family, and there were those who argued that. To do that, you just sort of stayed exactly where you were, or indeed increased the obligations on them. And I think all the evidence that we saw was that for a commercial broadcaster uh, uh, of its kind, which is the you know the the, the, the mainstream, popular, big audience uh, kind, um, that was that was getting tougher and tougher and tougher, and therefore finding. Uh, modifications, revisions, which which gave us more confidence that we could, it, we would, it would still be attractive both for, for ITV, its shareholders, whoever they're going to be, and us and everybody else for it to be still contributing healthily uh, as a public service broadcaster. Um, I think that was, you know, we, that that's what we were trying to to 
to manage. And I, I, you know, I don't think we did a bad job of that. I mean, you, it's it's easy with hindsight. You could say we were a bit. You could say we should have been tougher with them, but I think there's plenty of people on the ITV side who would say that we weren't, we didn't give them enough slack, and they could have done X, Y, and Z a lot faster earlier if, if we'd given them a lot more slack. So it's a far, it's a pretty fine judgment. I don't think we were miles away. I think it's very reasonable to say there was there was a substantial body of evidence that they were under considerable pressure on a set on a you know secular basis and therefore you know you had to adapt the the approach um i mean you could say the same thing you know just extend the point about the bbc i mean you one of the things you know it, 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 uh, I mean, we we did have a relationship with the bbc uh when i was running ofcom um through market impact work and you know that's another example where people you know people in the bbc you know, thought this was, you know, many people in the BBC, not all of them, but many thought this was, you know, pretty outrageous, intrusive, inappropriate, and so on. But, you know, when the BBC was set up, there weren't any commercial broadcasters, and then there were only three, and so on. So the, the, the notion that through time, you've just got to adapt these things, and, you know, a very powerful organisation like the BBC you know, got to be mindful of its impact on the market when there is a flourishing market that's trying to invest and be able to invest with some degree of certainty and predictability. You know, I think that was a reasonable thing to do. Um, so I, these things, both of those are examples of, of judgments that are that were not, you know, you have, you have to make the best possible judgment you can and you're, you're trying to, uh, you, you, you're trying to sustain what, what you believe is positive and healthy um, in a way which is, you know, consistent with the sticking, stick, you know, sticking to good principles. Um, I'm going to come on to Ofcom itself. So, as I said, said at the the outset, apologies if you can hear my dog barking in the background. Um, Said at the outset, one of the, one of the architects uh, that, uh, that that kind of put Ofcom back uh, in place as part of the Comms Act. Um, looking at its remit over time and the way that its remit has grown, um, I guess two questions. Firstly, is it still fit for purpose, and and how is how has that uh, unfolded over time? Um, intrigued in your view as to the degree that having telcos and media under one roof has turned out to be the right thing, and the degree to which actually any of that work has has significantly overlapped, um, or are they two separate pools of people thinking about two separate pools of issues? Yeah. Um, well, and then, yeah, and actually, there is, yeah, respond to that and another one in a second. Well, so, so you've got to think about this in different perspectives. So the the, the, the first, so um, I think um, uh, what, 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 the, the question was: it sensible to move? Think about media and telco together in the way that we did. I mean, I think the answer to that is unequivocally yes. I mean, there's no, I don't think that's, uh, uh, I think that was clearly right. I think you then got to move to the new question, which is post-media and telco, of which there are two. One is actually you are in a kind of post-media telco world to some degree, uh, where they almost all, you know, there's very few telcos now that don't have some content proposition. Um, and there's no, uh, there are no media companies. You don't have to un- have a s- sophisticated distribution strategy, which may or may not involve different relationships with network infrastructure. So I think, uh, and, and, you know, you just think about the bundles of services, you know, what do you, what do people buy? Well, they buy, you know, they buy bundles, which might include the whole lot, mobile, fixed, uh, premium movies, premium sport, and access to, and a TV box. So, the, so I think that is was absolutely right. But where, where you're at now is in, you, you're really not thinking media telco. You're thinking content and infrastructure, content and networks. So the question now is, is it sensible to have uh, the the same you know regulator doing content and networks as opposed to media and telco, if you see what I mean? Um, and the next question, of course, beyond that, which is really the cutting edge one, is um, is tech and you know what do we mean by tech regulation and how does that fit? With all of that, and some of as- some of the aspects of the issues raised by the uh, 
the rise of the global tech companies. Some of them are content in nature. Some of them are economic uh, network type in content. But of course, they're not really network because they're all over-the-top software platforms and they're, they're a completely different kind of e- economic, or not completely different, but a different economic question. So they're not really infrastructure, or if you think about them in infrastructure, they're a different kind of infrastructure. You could argue that, you know, certain social media platforms or platforms of some kind are, you know, you could make that argument. Um, So I think it's a new set of questions, and that that is the nature of the set of questions today. And, you know, is, is, um, you know, is Ofcom... What was your question, John? Was it is Ofcom fit for purpose in relation to those? Well, it, 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 as as the industry shifts again, does Ofcom's remit need to shift with it? Oh, well, I think Ofcom's remit has to shift uh, uh, in the sense, and I think that's true of any. I mean, you should do a. There should be a thoughtful review of the remit of all major regulators. You know, every certainly every decade at the absolute minimum, and Ofcom is a major regulator. Uh, so that, that absolutely should happen, uh, it, it, and it needs to adapt to where the industry is and where it's going. And obviously, it's got various new duties. It's likely to get more. Um, the, it, that presents all sorts of questions. It presents questions about the skills inside the organisation, the expertise, uh, which obviously is you know, skew, begins to begins to lean in new and or different directions um you probably get a question at some point about you get two questions as well one one of which is uh scale and scope and you know i think you've got to be you've got to be you've always got to be mindful about the bandwidth and capacity of the leadership of organizations like this just in terms of how much there is on the tray to deal with and you've got to be confident that, that you can do that. Uh, and then the, uh, you know, this, this, the second um, issue which is related is whether you can, uh, whether you can effectively interact with industry, you know, with, with industries that are looking in very different directions. Um, you know, some quite historic, with particularly very conventional regulatory models and others, you know, you're in really very, very new territory where people are still exploring what it means. I mean, so people keep asking me, you know, are we, are we nearly there on the regulation of, of, of tech? I mean, they use that obviously as a shorthand for all the things being discussed. And usually they mean uh, the you know, online safety bill and all of those issues. And my my usual response is that you know you're going to have to get used to the fact we're probably in the foothills of this. I mean, I think it'll take years to work out how you uh, approach this in a way which is uh, which strikes the right balances, which you know protects citizens, protects consumers, gives them the kind of rights they need, but doesn't deter investment, doesn't deter innovation, isn't too intrusive and costly. You know, these are the balances you've got to strike. And it, it, I think I think it will take quite a while to perfect these. And people who are expecting, a, 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 you know, a couple of years and will be done and that's it, I think that will be quite mistaken. I mean, even something as, which in hindsight looks so straightforward as, you know, teleco, telco regulation, um, you know, it took years you know, 20 years to work out roughly where we thought the right balance was between different types of regulation, different, you know, principles based, rules based. There's, you know, this is, this is quite complicated stuff and there's some fine balances to be struck. And as I say, I think we're probably in the foothills of it. So uh, good for those who are, you know, interested in these subjects, but, um, you know, anyone who wants a quick fix, I think you're in, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> I've told this story in the past. The um, I think it was a book that Danny Boyle drew heavily from for the opening of the Olympics, uh, the Olympics opening ceremony. Uh, it's a book called Pandemonium, which is a selection of um, contemporary accounts of the early stages of the Industrial Revolution, and and people just going and being bewildered. I mean, seeing all these amazing benefits and all the rest of it, but a, a whole bunch of, of social and, and economic harm as well, and disruption, and not quite knowing how to make it. And it yeah, you know, it took the Victorians quite a long time. To get on top of that and make sense of it, and uh, it did. You know, it did. It's it, a, there, there is a ways to go. 
It's a very, it's a very good um, analogy, and. Uh, I mean, I, I remember thinking, just to illustrate this from my time back at Ofcom, I mean, one of the things I did in my last year or two, I remember I, I made I made a couple of speeches or contribution of some sort. I can't remember what they were really. Uh, but I, I basically, my, the thrust of what I was saying was, you know, look, uh, this internet thing, it's in everybody's living rooms, bedrooms. It's going to be, it's everywhere. And it's merely a matter, you know, it, someone's got to start thinking about what the, optimal approach to uh, regulation or voluntary regulation or whatever you want to think about it is. And I, honestly, I couldn't get any takers at all. <laughs> I mean, as if I was talking to a brick wall. And then, you know, lo and behold, you know, I mean, that doesn't award, I'm not trying to award myself particular foresight because I wasn't alone in saying it. But it was, it was clear to people who'd uh, been involved in the in the depth of these policy debates and uh, in particular in relation to the inter, you know, the, the rising impact of these services that you could think, well, there's only, you know, they're going to be so powerful and so ubiquitous and so important that, you know, the, the, it is absolutely inevitable that there will be um, questions of concern to um, the you know, policy-making political classes in response to the general public. And it's just, it did, it did take a bit longer than I expected. <clears throat> um, it, it always depends which end of the telescope you look down in terms of short-term versus long-term. Um, yeah. Looking looking back at your tenure, particularly at Ofcom, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, but equally, um, there are still things in your speeches around, uh, we believe that mobile is going to be quite big. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, or, or, and, and you know, wireless routers are appearing in people's homes. Yeah, um, yeah. This, this looked yeah. like a trend. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago, and you know, I can remember f- f- furious debates about uh, uh, you know Wi-Fi, and uh, you know, I mean, I remember a few a bit huge debate about you know were we it, you know were we really going to you know make more capacity available for Wi-Fi? What would it be needed for? This is ridiculous, and so on. We could use our own <laughs> And you know, look at that. Look at it now. I mean, people's everybody's house is full of <laughs> Wi-Fi. Exactly. So no, and, and I agree. I agree. It has moved. In some ways, it's moved more slowly than I expected, and in other ways, it's obviously moved incredibly fast. And you're right; it's not that long ago that I was I was leading Ofcom. So you know, it does depend uh, depend what perspective you're taking. Appreciate that Ofcom's remit has, has shifted a bit since you left in, in terms of particularly BBC regulation, but I'm sure some of these issues were still uh, affect you at the time. Um, how comfortable was it dealing with broadcasters who need to hold politicians to account? Given that you're arm's length essentially between the industry and the politicians, there's a natural, there's an inbuilt incentive there to keep a low profile. Yes, I mean, this is one of the subtle uh, areas of, sort of subtle balance in the system uh which which depends both on the architecture but also on the uh, uh the approach of key people to try to make it work um so you know that and that that is the different you know that you need that's what i mean by that is that you need for these things to work well you need both the formal uh aspect to be good and then you need the informal reality to be respected and work well as well. And you, you always need both. Um, I think, the, the, you know, formally, of course, the position is, you know, government, there is government, uh, there is an independent regulator in Ofcom, and then there are broadcast organisations who are regulated who are themselves independent, ranging from BBC through Channel 4 and so on. So the formal architecture is sort of relatively clear, um, what it requires, though, on top is you know, the judicious and respectful approach to that by the people in the most senior positions. I mean, you've got to be, you've got to, I think it's really important that people at the top of those organizations uh, believe that model and respect it and conduct themselves in a way that is, that is consistent with what matters there. And what matters is that it is incredibly important that broadcast organizations and editorial leaders and editorial functions are not prone to or vulnerable to uh, 
political pressure and manipulation. So your role at Ofcom is a very, very, very important one as both actually being the regulator in relation to some of these content issues that are editorial issues that are incredibly sensitive, but also as a bulwark against anything inappropriate. Now, it is worth me saying that I would say, you know, I had, I think I worked with about eight different secretaries of state during my sort of eight and a half years as chief exec, something like that, or it may have been a bit before. Um, I would say the 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 vast majority did understand that and were very, and respected it and again did you know approached it very sensibly um, partly because of course the the wiser ones worked out that the last thing they wanted was to actually get involved in it <laughs> and having a regulator there to deal with it and be seen to deal with it and be seen to deal with it independently objectively that actually was the best answer for everybody um, now that's there's no guarantee that in all cases all you know future holders of those positions will take that approach and you look at some other countries and you can see where the formal architecture may well be in place but the informal reality is completely different uh, and there is political manipulation and control behind the scenes uh, usually uh, covertly but sometimes almost overtly and so so it's you need all of those things to be in place and uh my experience of it was by and large pretty darn positive actually i'd say but i I think it's a it's a constant you know it requires constant vigilance um simon albury has written fairly recently about uh more, more recent um uh ofcom work um, and he described Ofcom as being a general hospital that's great at geriatric care, but doesn't have enough midwives to birth anything new. Um, and <laughs> I thought it was an interesting take. <laughs> and the reason I bring that up is that uh, also one of the things that happened on your watch is is um, a, a consistent set of PSB reviews that essentially said similar things around the the, the challenges to the core model of PSB. You know, at some point that falls apart, and we need to reinvent it. Um, and in two specific instances, uh, you then went further to put two ideas on the table that said independent regional news consortia, if we separately funded them, we can recreate. It's important for plurality and to um, to have a different set of voices alongside the BBC and regional news yeah. and journalism and so on. Uh, but that will take funding. Um, and similarly, on the PSP, the public service publisher idea, uh, broadcasters don't seem to be embracing things that aren't television programs yeah. uh, as quickly as the market is. Yeah, and if there is public purpose and value in doing that, maybe the stimulus that's required is a separate institution to doing that. I guess the the, the question that follows from that is, given the system needs to evolve now, where are you on trying to get the existing institutions to evolve versus creating new interventions and potentially contestable or dedicated funding that's part of that? Uh, and who's best placed to start to stimulate that, given the experience yeah. that you have? Okay, well, that's incredibly interesting. So, just just let's just um, recap on the two notions first. Um, so, the first point. Um, I mean, in both cases, just you know, let's make clear we were seeking to sort of innovate and put things on the table to sort of drive thinking, and we can come back to them specifically. But but let's just take the two points. The, 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 were the they, were they, sorry, just, just, just to jump in, were they were they specific proposals or were they stalking horses? Um, I would say they were a mixture of the two. Uh, I mean, they were certainly designed in both cases to force the debate. And if you don't put anything on the table and you just throw your arms up in the air and say, oh, isn't it awful? You know, isn't it, oh, gosh, whoa, whoa, you know, nobody listens. You literally can't get any traction. So they were definitely, they were definitely intended to put something on the table in order to force a discussion. Now um, you can, you could, so you know, you can. That that, that is my way of answering that. Uh, uh, so you could call them stalling horses. You could call them policy proposals. They were sort of both, really. I mean, they they the, the trouble is, I've had too much experience of people saying, "Look, oh." You know, here's a here's a report that says it's all looking a bit. There's you know, many things to be concerned about, uh, 
Yeah. You know, you write it's, that it's and stum- nobody it's stumbling on it. It's stumbling, stumbling on that hasn't fallen over yet. Yeah, there's nothing to respond to. There's nothing, there's no, so there's no, so un, unambiguously, John, they were absolutely intended to force a discussion. And they certainly did that. But let's let's look at them, right? So firstly, I personally think that the hollowing out of local and regional news across the newspaper industry and the broadcasting industry is a matter of, uh, remains a matter of considerable concern to me. And I think the the role and the importance of a healthy, independent media in and holding to account and scrutinizing um, uh, political and administrative decision making is incredibly important. It's still very healthy uh, at uh, London, Westminster level. I think as soon as you go beyond London and Westminster and beyond the national media, I think it's pretty severely curtailed. And I go back to the era when you would have well-resourced local, regional, nations, newsrooms alongside very well-resourced and highly active and effective uh, newspapers. And I just don't see that anymore. And I think that has got a real consequence um, for the quality of accountability and scrutiny of political process and and administrative decision making in in those areas. So I, I... I don't know whether that was the right answer, but I'm absolutely sure we were on to the right issue. And the PSP, let's just take this back to your your uh, your mention earlier of you know public service broadcasting or public service media. You know, look, let me just illustrate the point. I don't, I can't remember what year it was we talked about that, but let me tell you what I do now, and it'd be interesting to see you know what people react to. I I am still a great consumer of all sorts of content but i mean i'm i'm looking at my iphone at the moment which is next to my computer and i basically listen to for example the bbc's radio services i listen to most of them and i listen to them all through bbc sounds i i don't know i i don't think i turn the radio on as a linear broadcast function i use a lot of them but i use it all over the internet on demand at my own time of choosing as chunks of content. It is, it is, whether you like it or not, that is public service media. That's what it is. I actually do not use it in broadcast form. I suspect the same is true for many people in relation to the iPlayer, ITV Hub, for on demand, etc. etc. So I, I, I you know <laughs> clearly in terms of the evolution of services what we were saying then, you know, was right. Um, and the question was whether people responded to it. Now, you know, BBC Sound's a good example of how it has been responded to. And, you know, I will be interested to see in the BBC's review of its services how many linear services survive uh, and what they do with them. Because actually, what you, what you are going to end up with is a, is a public service content uh, organization and you know less slightly less true where you're reaching peak time audiences for advertising but the same sort of thing is true if you listen to what alex Mann says about channel four you know it's a it is you know she she correct she rightly speaks about the success they've had in diversifying their revenue stream and that is all about digital non-linear non-broadcast stream so you know again on the issue I would absolutely, I'd absolutely defend what we were doing. Now, uh, then you come to how did we manage to, you know, can we stimulate a debate on that and get people thinking about it more uh, aggressively and on a more, uh, you know, long-term basis? Well, you know, I hope we did. I hope we did that. Uh, but I think the evolution of where we've where we've arrived at demonstrates on both points. One. I think regrettably, because of on the regional news, local news side, where we've got to, it's not great. Um, and the other, perhaps, you can be much more optimistic about, because I think there's been a, a big um, material change towards what you would describe as, you know, public service publishing, public service media, whatever you want to call it. That is where we're heading, and that's in some ways where we've moved dramatically to. Um, the, the the PSP thing I remember well. It led to all sorts of things, not least um, Channel 4's four AP investment fund looking to looking to them invest beyond TV. 
So what, what what does it mean to invest in a game or a, yeah. um, an app or a website or those sorts of things that, that has public service uh, values to it? Um, what it leads to is a debate around, well, are those institutions that are the traditionally regulated PSB institutions with those remits the right ones to try and wrestle with that because they've, they, they haven't had a brilliant track record at it um, no. and they're very focused on TV. And meanwhile, there are other people in the public sphere who are definitely creating content um, uh, and services that have that sort of angle to them. Uh, lessons learned or, or, or thoughts around how uh, pros and cons essentially of contestable funding and who who can who can divide that up or is it better to get the institutions themselves to try and evolve and, and embrace this stuff? Yeah, well, it's I, I don't think it's necessarily right answer to it, but I don't think you could look at you know you could look at the uh, I, I, I think ruling out the notion of you know a pot of money that is contestable for these purposes you know it's clearly a credible potential policy um uh i think you have to weigh it up against the you know some people sort of said oh it's ridiculous could never work i mean i think that's ridiculous of course of course you could design something like that and of course you could get it to work um i think that isn't the issue i think the issue is is it a preferable model to a more purely institutional uh version and you know that you can that is worth debating um uh i think uh you know, I, I'm, I, prob- I, prob- I um, gen- generally speaking, I err uh, more towards the institutional. It might surprise you to hear that, given the kinds of things we put on the table, but I do. And I err uh, more towards an institutional model because I think there is, there is um, value in uh, institutional focus and purpose and clarity. And I just think these things are can be quite complicated and you don't you want to try and you know all, any any content any significant content decision is complicated it's a creative decision you can't you know it's not like producing you know cans of coke or something or screwdrivers you know you these are complicated judgments um and therefore i think the the, the uh, re, re, inst- institutional clarity and simplicity certainly has real merits so i my own personal instinct is i err in that direction but you know look what's happened in on what i was saying about uh, the nation's regions and local news provision i mean we are not in a good place on that and you know nobody you know, we just drifted into that position. I'm not, you know, at the moment, everybody just sort of shrugs and says, well, that, you know, that's life. I mean, to be fair, there are some very interesting and exciting initiatives taking place around, you know, ultra local news and community journalism and all of that. So it's not, to- it's not all bad at all. And um, there's some very, some very excellent people trying to do their best to sort of move those things forward. But, you know, it's not, it's not, as it was in the period when that that world was, you know, well resourced. So I, I, I that's where I would err, John, uh, myself. Um, but I I think that's it's something well worth uh, debating periodically, um, and it's and it's and it's it's really important that the institutions who are the dominant force in that area, you know, feel that that's an alternative, such that they. You know, really are on their metal, um, and as you say, and the, the picture over the you know over the period has been uh, it's, it's it's not it's not perfect. I mean, there's been some terrific stuff done, and there's been some great progress made, but uh, there, it's not been it's not been. I don't think anybody would say it's been absolutely perfect. Um, conscious of, of your time and whoever's listening to this as well, just wrap up with with two questions if I can. Um, Opportunities that have been missed and lessons that we can learn from along the way. What could what what could the industry collectively have done more to end up in a better place? Uh, that is a difficult question. Um, look, if you if you were if you were, I'm I'm loath to criti- I'm loath to criticize to be honest because it's 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 hard. It's very easy to criticize. Um, about what should or should not have happened faster. I, you know, if you, all I would say about that is, I think you, if you took the overall trajectory and in relation to sort of moving fast and effectively into the digital 
age. Uh, I think in many ways we've done some really outstanding things. Things move quickly. Um, and in some other areas, we, you know, we should, probably should have moved a bit faster. Um, but, you know, that is easy to say from here. And I, 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 I so I say, I make that observation in the sense that I, I, it's impossible for it to have been perfect. Um, uh, and, I, and I feel there's, you know, there's quite a vibrant feel at the moment to things. And, you know, I'd rather, I'd definitely rather look forward. I mean, there's no, there's no single, in answer, direct answer question, is there any single thing which I think is a sort of dramatic dropping of the ball or you know, failure. I, 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 don't think, I don't think so. It's about speed of adaptation is the real issue. Uh, I mean, you could point at something like the kangaroo decision where there was the, you know, the, the proposed joint venture. I think, you know, a lot of many people with hindsight would say that that should have been permitted and would have created a stronger foundation stone to move more swiftly in that direction. I think that would be a reasonable observation. But otherwise, you know, it's just about the pace of adaptation. And you can, you know, as everyone, anyone who's run an organization knows, and I, I would put my own hand up to this, you know, you can always, in hindsight, you can always move faster. So uh, last one, just to wrap up. Um, there's a sense, I think, that uh, with charter renewal coming up, we've had announcements from the Secretary of State around this being the last license fee settlement and the license fee won't be uh, won't be repeated, potential channel for privatization, new license agreements for ITV and five. Um, and a sense that whatever it is, by that stage, more than 20 years of Ofcom PSB reviews, which have essentially described the frog in boiling water and the water's yeah. getting hotter, but it's not jumping out yet. Um, maybe the way to put it is if, is if, if, if PSB or the industry was a, was a current client of yours, what would you be advising them to do now to get ahead of the game? And uh, as, uh, as John Burke wrote in his mem- memoirs, don't let things happen to you. Um, but get ahead yeah. of the game and, and 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 invent your own future. Well, that so in terms is of trying to get to the best, in terms of trying to get to the best possible outcome for for viewers yeah. in particular, what should we yeah. be doing now? Well, that that but that is the right answer. You see what what John said there is right, and I would one hundred percent endorse it. I mean that that is the challenge. I would just I would just hope that all the leadership teams in all of these organisations sitting around saying, you know, uh, look, we've got to look after the day job, but we have to understand what, what, where we're going to be in line with our. Uh, purposes and ambitions as an organization uh, and, and and how we're going to get there and we have to make that future for ourselves and when you get to the when you get to the, the PSB entities um, you know that that necessarily involves engaging in public policy and regulatory issues as well as just commercial ones so that is absolutely what they've got to do um, they've got to accept that that needs to be a debate with the government and the regulator because it, it is and indeed in many cases in the end it's the matter for the government but you know the government is as much a taker of ideas as it is a creator of ideas so you, know, you have of course you have to take you know you absolutely have to take initiative in these things and help create your own future and if you don't you know you're just you just in a sense you've i think it's it's almost negligent not to to be honest if you're if you're in the leadership team of these organizations you've, you've absolutely got to do that so uh, that that is the central point and you know i'm sure they're all doing it but it is absolutely what they have to do is it a big enough moment for another Peacock or Pilkington style review, independent of everybody? I could be with the charter, because I think I mean there is a sort of sense of, you know, there is a there is a sense that now is the time to ask whether the license fees as a as a sort of as the central model is as the cornerstone, you know, is sustainable for another X decades. But so could be because I think you've got to be confident about that and there's no point putting your head in the sand and sort of saying let's not debate it you should debate it and if you think it's the right answer you should have confidence about it and get on with it so there's no point in putting yourself i mean i really don't believe in putting yourself in a in weak, weak defensive intellectual positions you know if we, if we if we still believe that the license fee should be the cornerstone of a system like this and a system like this should be should prevail into the future for very good reasons then we should know why that is and we sh- should be able to articulate that case 
Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thoughtful and uh, and erudite as ever. Um, uh, we will we will look forward to this unfolding, and we are all in the foothills of this. Um, but the, the next few years seem pretty pivotal. Uh, so Pleasure. thank you again for your time. Pleasure. Thanks very much, John. Cheers. Take care. Thank you. So we've now heard two different versions of what public service broadcasting should be. Lord Putnam's all-encompassing vision of a national health service of the mind, and John Whittingdale's narrower focus on providing a limited range of content that the market won't provide. We've now got two different ideas of the role of the regulator. Ofcom has long been regarded as an expert in analysing and assessing, but under Ed's leadership, it stepped forward and proposed solutions to the problems it had identified, stimulating debate in a sector that in Ofcom's view didn't seem to be moving fast enough. It will be very interesting to see which of these models Lord Grade and Dame Melanie Dawes adopts in the run-up to the renewal of the various licences and charters as the sector gets reshaped over the next few years. In the next episode of Lens, we change tack a little and hear from two industry veterans who were also my predecessors as chair at the British Screen Forum. Adam Singer was CEO of FlexTech and a senior executive at TCI and was one of the pioneers of the cable TV industry before becoming Deputy Chair of the Ofcom Content Board. And David Elstein has been a constructive critic of both public service broadcasters and Ofcom, and had a distinguished career as a producer before becoming Head of Programming at Sky and Launch CEO at Channel 5. Don't forget to subscribe to have this next episode delivered as soon as it's released, and thank you for listening.